Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, the Cassus Belly Project. As always, I encourage everyone to visit the website at CassusBellyPodcast.com and to rate the podcast on iTunes or like it on SoundCloud. Those are the best ways to support and spread the show, aside from word of mouth, of course. Again, if you would like to reach me, you can co- contact me at CassusBellyGuy at gmail.com. So in this episode, we'll continue with the war on the Eastern Front, then pivot to the Arctic convoys that supplied material to the Red Army, and finish up in North Africa with Operation Crusader. So this episode ended up getting pretty long because it wasn't quite long enough without Crusader, but Crusader isn't really enough material for a whole episode on its own. But I don't want to have to make an awkward transition in the middle of an episode where America enters the war. I want to go into the next episode basically opening a new chapter. If the Second World War is a three-act drama, we're at the end of the first act and about to start the second with Pearl Harbor. So to steal yet another phrase from Winston Churchill, let's begin episode 14, The End of the Beginning. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. As discussed in the preceding episodes, Hitler had changed his objectives midway through the invasion of Russia. Rather than all three axes of advance being equal, Army Group South had become the main element. Hitler believed that conquering the vast breadbasket of Ukraine would be more important than taking either Leningrad or Moscow. For once, the Fuhrer wasn't focused on decisive battle, and it was at the exact wrong moment. Like the other two prongs of the invasion, Army Group Center, under von Bach, had achieved monumental success in achieving its goals, and was gaining ground every day. In addition, the Russian Western Command was badly bloodied and could barely hold the line. Von Bach knew it, and Heinz Guderian knew it. They were so close to taking Moscow and destroying the center of the Russian army, they could taste it. Unfortunately, in August of 1941, Hitler had recalled them to his headquarters to inform them that von Rundstedt's army group south would now be the priority. At the conference, Guderian waited patiently for his turn to speak. As Keitel, Jodl, and Braukic bent over backwards to appease their leader, he rehearsed his speech in his mind. When Hitler finally addressed him for his report from the front, Guderian used the opportunity to protest the change in plan. He reminded the Fuhrer of the need to destroy the enemy's maneuver force, and how critical capturing Moscow was to ultimate victory. In most wars, a choice needs to be made between destroying your opponent's force and seizing land. Depending on the circumstance, one can be more important than the other. In the American Civil War, destroying the rebel armies was the key to defeating the South. It didn't matter how much land federal forces seized if the Confederate armies continued to fight. Alternatively, in the First World War, seizing terrain was the more important objective. 
If the German army had been able to take Paris, it would have ended the war right there. During the invasion of Russia, destroying the Red Army was certainly the more important objective. The Soviets just had so much land to surrender. In late 1941, the Russians had already lost thousands of square miles of territory and were still in the fight. Taking Moscow might not have been a death blow, but it certainly would have altered the fight significantly. Moscow was the logistics hub of Europe, European Russia. All rail and communications lines flowed through the city. Without it, the northern and southern Red Army fronts would have essentially been severed and would have to fight independently without a common logistics hub. Guderian tried to impress this upon Hitler, but he wasn't having it. He told Guderian that he didn't understand the economic aspects of the war, that he needed the Ukrainian grain to feed his army, and that Russian bombers stationed in the south threatened Romanian oil fields. Guderian knew that the, his argument was a long shot, and when the Fuhrer launched into his tirade, he resigned himself to his fate. Soon, he was back on the front, directing his tanks south to assist von Rundstedt. On August 3rd, Hitler had canceled the directive to take Moscow, and on the 23rd, he had convened the meeting at which Guderian pleaded with him to reconsider. Upon returning to his command, Guderian led his men in the encirclement of Kiev. Though it was a masterful stroke, it was somewhat beside the point. For three weeks, the German armies battled eastward before turning toward each other 150 miles to the rear of Kiev. Rundstedt had not only encircled the city, though, but the bulk of southwestern front. Inside his iron ring were 450,000 men. On September 16th, the pincers joined and closed the circuit. By September 26th, Kiev was captured and the battle ended. Of those 450,000 men trapped, only about 15,000 escaped, leaving behind their comrades and 2,600 guns. Those weren't all the Red Army casualties suffered, though. In fighting the battle, an additional 300,000 men had been lost in direct action outside the encirclement. In October, the Wehrmacht would go on to achieve another stunning victory in the encirclement of Vyazma, south of Moscow. Here, another 600,000 Soviet soldiers were removed from the map. Hitler was beside himself with glee. He was so excited, in fact, that he declared the Russian bear had been completely defeated. He thought he was mere days from ultimate victory. Sure, it had taken a few weeks longer than he had expected, but such is the course of war. The lead elements of Army Group Center were only 130 miles from Moscow. In the first days of the war, they could cover that distance in a week. But the first few days of the war were long gone by now. As summer had turned to fall, the rains had arrived in western Russia. The glorified footpaths of the Russian countryside could hardly handle German traffic in the summer when they were dry. With frequent rains, they turned to mud and never dried out. Without tracked support vehicles, tanks became impromptu wreckers. The tanks weren't designed to pull trucks out of the mud, though, so they ended up just blowing their transmissions, which compounded the Germans' logistics nightmare. With the roads grinding to a halt, the Germans turned to felling trees and creating duckboard roads. For hundreds of miles, reaching all the way back to Germany, German engineers cleared forests to create byways for incoming and outgoing supply trains. Nor were the Red Army troops still fresh and unseasoned. After months of fighting, they had learned how to defend against German offensives. For one, they had become experts at blowing bridges. Unlike in the initial offensive, Germans could no longer count on inheriting Soviet infrastructure. Every stream and river now had to be bridged. Additionally, the civilian population was now full, fully mobilized. Rather than being despondent and ready to accept defeat, the Russian population was resolute and motivated. 
Because every able-bodied man and a significant number of women had been pressed into military service, and hundreds of thousands more women were organized into working parties, the Soviets had huge numbers to work with. They fanned out in front of Moscow and dug thousands of miles of defensive works. They dug tank traps, huge ditches designed for tanks to fall into without being able to back out or pull forward without wedging themselves. They dug trenches for soldiers. They built sandbag pillboxes and steel barricades all the way from the front back into the city itself. Like in Leningrad, the city's entire industrial base was mobilized to produce weapons of war. The incomplete palace of the Soviets was deconstructed and its steel melted down for use in factories or incorporated into defensive works. And finally, the Moscow Metro, even today a massive train system, was pressed into service as a troop transport and supply shuttle. With German armies fast approaching, the city of Moscow was finally evacuated on October 15th. This led to three days of chaos as hundreds of thousands fled eastward. The train stations were flooded with people trying to escape. Not only was every seat filled, but every compartment and the rooftops too. The bread lines were overwhelmed with hungry evacuees trying desperately to secure food to carry with them on their journey. They didn't know where they were going, just east. While the civilians too old, young, or infirm to help with the defenses fled, trainloads of reservists from across the far corners of the Soviet Empire streamed west. They included giant blonde men from Siberia, Turkmen, Kazakhs, and Tajiks from the stands, and East Asians from the border with Mongolia and China. These men were just as terrifying to the Muscovites as the invading armies, the only difference being that they were in Soviet uniforms. Notorious for their drunken benders, the reservists were locked in ancient, dilapidated barracks to drink themselves half to death for three days before entering into active service. The NKVD, a sort of secret police, issued them bottles of vodka, locked them away, and when they were finished, pushed them to the front. The civilians were right to fear the Germans and flee. In their wake had followed malignant depravity from almost day one. Despite initially welcoming the Germans as liberators, the Ukrainians had learned all too quickly the malice that drove the Wehrmacht eastward. Following the frontline units of infantry and armor were not only logisticians, but also SS extermination squads. They were tasked with rounding up not only Jews, but also with singling out commissars and captured Red Army units. After securing a village, the death squads, often referred to as the Black Crows by the Ukrainians, would sweep through and carry out any executions they saw fit. Whether the captured commissars were hanged or simply shot, it was usually done in broad daylight in front of innocent villagers. Many times, the villagers themselves were caught up in the wanton violence. If they were believed to be harboring their targets, the SS men would kill the villagers too, or just burn down the barn they were holed up in. The savagery of the Black Crows was only abated with the death of their most exuberant benefactor in Army Group South, Field Marshal Reichenau, in early 1942. By that time, the damage was already done, though. Along the whole front, not only the SS, but the average soldiers were encouraged to act brutally toward the conquered. Prisoners were lucky to be marched starving back to the German rear. Many were summarily executed after being captured, if allowed to surrender at all. After witnessing the murder of so many of their husbands, brothers, and fathers, Ukrainian women were rounded up to be transported west as slave labor in Germany. The young and attractive would entertain high-ranking officers and Nazi leadership. The others were sent to the fields. In recently conquered areas, martial law was in effect, and even company-grade officers could mete out capital punishment. Simply being insubordinate to an officer 
or being in the wrong place at the wrong time could get a villager shot. In addition, rape was rampant. Most of the villages were disproportionately female, all the able-bodied men having been rounded up and drafted into the army. Anyone who attempted to intervene when a German soldier chose a victim was subject to swift retribution himself. Subject to horrors ranging from starvation to mass execution to rape, the Ukrainian and larger Russian population grew to hate the German invaders. When partisans managed to capture German soldiers, they had inventive ways of torturing and killing them. When winter came, they would tie naked soldaten together and splash water on them until they froze together. When their comrades discovered their bodies, they found a nightmarish, grotesque ice sculpture. This, in turn, led to the local soldiers seeking revenge, deepening the population's animosity toward their occupiers. The brutality exhibited by the Germans only begot yet more brutality, and when the red tide finally came rolling back out in 1944, the Germans would experience for themselves what they had wrought on the Slavs. That was all still years in the future, though. For now, the Soviets were only hanging on by a thread. Their fortunes would soon begin to change, though, especially as American Lend-Lease began to arrive. The Soviets were thirsty for every sort of material support available, whether it be planes, trucks, tanks, guns, or just barbed wire. In fact, Stalin was as keen on wire as anything else. He needed it to defend the part of Russia he still controlled. Wire is actually pretty nifty in defense. Not only is it an anti-personnel weapon, but it is also capable of stopping vehicles, as it gets tangled in their axles and tears apart their wheels. Stalin was ecstatic when Roosevelt's personal representative in Moscow told him that he would receive 400 tons of barbed wire a month. Of course, this material didn't just magically appear in Stalin's warehouses. It had to actually be transported to the Soviet Union somehow. This was accomplished by the Arctic convoys that traveled north of Scandinavia to deliver supplies in Murmansk and Arkhangelsk. Unfortunately, German-occupied Norway made this an even more difficult task than it would have been otherwise. German aircraft stationed in the country could patrol hundreds of miles out to sea, forcing the convoys to take a wide route far to the west and north, dragging the voyage out to 15 days in the summer. In the winter, the problem was only multiplied by the danger of sea ice that blocked more northerly routes, forcing the convoys to pass within range of the Luftwaffe. Each season had its drawbacks, though. During the summer, they could travel further from land-based aircraft, but almost 24 hours of daylight made them easy to spot for patrolling U-boats. During the winter, constant, or near-constant, darkness protected the sailors from the Germans, but the weather was almost as deadly as their foe. Ice was a persistent danger. Without round-the-clock de-icing, ships could go get so top-heavy that they capsized, especially in the violent storms of the far north. According to a sailor named Bill Smith aboard the HMS Magpie, Quote, the temperature in these seas got as low as 60 degrees below freezing. Your eyebrows and eyelashes froze, and your eyes were very sore with the winds blowing into them. When you got down to the mess deck, there was about three inches of water from condensation. The older men, who had their hair in their noses, found that they froze solid and were like needles. Many men came off the watch with faces covered in blood as they had rubbed their noses without thinking. End quote. At first, sailing was smooth, so to speak. When the first convoy departed in August 1941, there were essentially no Germans in the Arctic Ocean. The U-boat fleet was concentrated in the North Atlantic. During the winter of 1941 to 1942, convoys were able to pass nearly unharassed thanks to the ubiquitous darkness. In February 1942, only one ship was lost making the transit. 
Once daylight began to overtake darkness, the situation would change, however. In March, the Tirpitz arrived on station and very nearly caught convoys PQ-12 and QP-8, PQ being the outgoing run and QP being the return journey. By May, 260 Luftwaffe patrol aircraft were available, along with 30 U-boats and two pocket battleships. It was only a matter of time before a convoy was spotted and the Germans were able to coordinate a devastating attack on it. Exactly this happened on July 4, 1942. Until this point, convoy losses were in the single digits. For a week in July, the Luftwaffe and Kriegsmarine were able to concentrate their forces in a devastating ambush. On June 27, 1942, convoy PQ-17 departed Iceland for the Russian port of Arkhangelsk, with 34 merchant vessels escorted by 6 destroyers, 11 corvettes, and various other small craft. Shortly after embarking, the convoy was spotted by U-456 and tracked intermittently until July 1st, when German aerial reconnaissance spotted the convoy. The Kriegsmarine and Luftwaffe were now plotting to interdict. Meanwhile, the Admiralty was tracking the movements of the Tirpitz, and after observing it sailing north along the Norwegian coast, feared that it and its battle group were aiming to interdict QP-17. In response, they ordered the escorts to leave the merchant vessels in order to try and block the intercept. At the same time, the convoy was instructed to scatter. This would prove disastrous. As the escorts sailed southwest to find the Tirpitz, the merchant vessels were alone on the waves. On July 4th, the attack began in earnest. With the destroyers gone, only small anti-aircraft auxiliaries, minesweepers, and corvettes were left to protect the scattered ships. The U-boat and Luftwaffe spent the next several days harassing and sinking Allied shipping in coordinated and effective attacks. On July 5th, 12 merchantmen were sunk by combined air and sea attack. Through July 8th, Eight more merchantmen were sunk to Luftwaffe sorties. By July 10th, a total of 23 merchant vessels were sunk in exchange for only five aircraft lost. And the escort diversion to find the Tirpitz? It never found its prey. It was the single deadliest engagement of the entire Battle of the Arctic. The attack was so devastating that another convoy wasn't launched until September. When the convoys did begin sailing again, it was under much heavier protection. The Germans were now actively trying to halt the northern convoys, so the Allies began beefing up the escorts to include more cruisers and destroyers, but also permanently assigning an escort carrier. Now, Allied shipping had proper protection, and the Battle of the Arctic mirrored the Battle of the Atlantic, and that Allied protection gradually outpaced U-boat activity as the Kriegsmarine losses became unsustainable. The end of the war was still a long way off in the winter of 1941-42, though. As fall gave way to winter in October and November of 1941, five months of hard fighting was wearing on the Wehrmacht, and their lack of winter supplies was catching up with them. Hitler had been convinced the war was only going to last a few weeks, and that he would be taking Moscow by September. In so doing, he and his planners had neglected to prepare winter uniforms and provisions for his men. As the first frosts arrived, followed by snow, German soldiers were wearing the same uniforms that they had been wearing in the heat of July. It was hard not to draw parallels with Napoleon's doomed Grand Armée. Even those soldiers who hadn't seen direct action were exhausted by this point. Every man not motorized or mechanized had to walk the hundreds of miles from the Soviet frontier to wherever they were now. Every single day, they had to get up at dawn and walk for hours on end, sometimes 20 or 25 miles a day, to keep up with the armored spearheads. This continued day after day for months. 
The men who caught up with the armored columns outside Moscow and Leningrad were run absolutely ragged. For them, the long march was at least coming to an end. The men of Army Group South still had hundreds of miles to go. In mid-October, Army Group South was still 170 miles west of Moscow, but the Germans pressed on, knowing that only victory could bring relief. The cold would soon become as great an enemy as the Russians. In November, the temperature dropped to below freezing, and without proper cold-weather clothing, frostbite cases started appearing. The men did what they could to protect themselves. They stuffed newspaper in their coats and straw in their boots, but it did precious little. 100,000 men suffered from frostbite in November. Old Man Winter was proving once again to be Russia's greatest ally and weapon. When winter uniforms finally did start to trickle in, it was woefully insufficient. Entire companies were allotted enough clothing for only four or five men. The soldiers weren't stupid. They knew who to blame, and they understood their army's operational plan. They knew full well that Mussolini caused Hitler to delay the invasion by over a month. They knew Hitler himself had halted their advance weeks earlier. And they knew it was his overconfidence that had delayed the arrival of warm clothing. But what could they do? Their only choice was to keep fighting and hope for something, anything, to give them a reprieve. On December 6th, advanced elements of Army Group Center are rumored to have gotten close enough to see Moscow's city lights in the distance. Regardless, they would never enter the city, and the soldiers would never receive the relief they so desperately craved. The war would continue, and Stalin was preparing a surprise for the beleaguered Germans. A counteroffensive was in the works. Even as the lead elements of Army Group Center claimed to have seen Moscow, the Red Army was launching an offensive to push them back. On the German right flank, the advance of Army Group South continued apace. They would spend the winter driving on past Kiev to Crimea. Stalin could live with this. For now, his priority was saving Moscow. In North Africa, the British were preparing a surprise for the Wehrmacht as well. Since Rommel's rapid advance east had been halted at the Battle of Hellfire Pass, the British had heavily reinforced their newly christened 8th Army. It was no longer the undermanned, undersupplied Western Desert Force that O'Connor had commanded, but was instead a force bristling with brand new equipment newly arrived from Britain and the United States, namely the new Matilda and Crusader tanks. It was now replete with four full-strength armored brigades, and it ranks swelled with men pouring in from all over the empire. Australians, Kiwis, South Africans, and Indians made up the diverse core of men that would soon confront Rommel. In charge of the Middle East Command was now General Sir Claude Auchinleck. Auchinleck was the titular officer of the British Imperial Army. After graduating from Sandhurst in 1902, he went to serve in the Indian Army and spent his career there. While serving in India, he learned the local languages and participated in Indian customs, and to a certain degree, went native. When the First World War began, he was sent to fight in the Middle East, where he fought the Ottoman Turks. He participated in the Mesopotamian Campaign and fought from the landing of, at Basra up to the capture of Baghdad. After the war, he returned to India, where he steadily rose up the ranks until he became the commander-in-chief of the Indian Army. While in that position, he oversaw the rapid expansion of the Indian Army in the lead-up to the war, was summoned back to the home country in 1940 to command a corps of the regular army. Winning command of four corps, he oversaw its landing in Narvik Harbor in Norway. Incredibly, not a single man under his command was lost during the operation. Clearly a capable and distinguished officer, he was transferred to take charge of the Middle East Command. Upon arriving in Egypt, he had his work cut out for him. First, as an Indian officer, he faced disdain from the regular army officers under him and was ignorant of the inside baseball, as it were. 
of the regular army. Second, he didn't know anything about armor. Not that anybody else did either. Auchinleck rose to the challenge, though. He won his first victory of the Middle East theater, not in Egypt or Libya, however, but in London. After taking command, he'd been recalled to conference with Churchill, who was desperate for good news from the front. He pressured Auchinleck to launch Operation Crusader, the new offensive, as soon as possible, but the Indian veteran would not, could not, be swayed. The offensive could not happen before November 1st, he told the Prime Minister. Churchill also tried to pressure him into accepting General Wilson as his operational commander for Crusader. But again, Auchinleck held his ground. His choice for the job, Lieutenant General Sir Alan Cunningham, would lead. Needless to say, holding your ground in front of the mighty Churchill is no mean feat. Back in Egypt, General Cunningham began his preparations. Despite having just come off the campaign to conquer Italian East Africa, Cunningham was a novice armor officer as well. This may not have been such a bad thing, but all of the experienced leadership from the previous campaigns have been transferred back to the home island to raise a new British Armored Corps for the invasion of the continent. The man left behind to lead the armored component of the 8th Army died along with his entire staff in an airplane crash weeks before. All of the lessons that have been learned the hard way from Operation Compass to Battle Axe now had to be relearned at every level. Worse, the short timetable gave Cunningham precious few weeks to train not only himself, but his men. The last of the reinforcements didn't arrive until October 15th, forcing him to delay the offensive for an additional two weeks. This drove Churchill mad. Not only did he need good news somewhere, but he was furious that the Middle East theater had been quiet for four months. Fortunately, Rommel was in dire straits himself. With Barbarossa raging in Russia, the Middle East had become a backwater. Every drop of fuel, every spare round, every waking moment back in Germany was devoted to keeping the juggernaut rolling east. The Africa Corps had received essentially no support since arriving. Only enough was provided to keep the force alive. Rommel was down to under 200 tanks compared to Cunningham's, now vast tank force of 710. He only had 120 aircraft. The British had 700 of those as well. Rommel managed to cobble together a spare light infantry division, but this hardly improved his position. He needed armor. Under these circumstances, Operation Crusader would prove to be a test of skill and experience against raw numbers. In England, Churchill held high hopes for the desert offensive. He wrote to Cunningham on the eve of battle, quote, For the first time, British and Empire troops will meet the German with an ample supply of equipment and modern weapons of all kinds. The battle will affect the whole course of the war. Now is the time to strike the hardest blow yet struck for final victory, home, and freedom. End quote. The plan for Crusader was intended to draw in Rommel's tanks against Cunningham's in one large battle royale. The German defense ran south from Bardia to Salem, then turned west to Gabersle. So Cunningham tasked his subordinate, General Norrie, to attempt to roll the German right flank at Gabersle with his armor. On the British right, Cunningham would send in his infantry to pin down the German defenders. In the center, Cunningham held an armored brigade in reserve, rather than pushing it around the left. Strangely, however, and against General Norrie's counsel, the British armor was to halt after seizing its objective, rather than immediately turning north toward the besieged British in Tobruk. Cunningham wanted to wait and see what Rommel did. Would he attempt to reinforce his left against the infantry, or retake Gabor Saleh? The first day of battle was hardly a battle at all. The British took Gabor Saleh without resistance. Not a single shot was fired, 
and the only Germans spotted were a few armored cars rolling through the desert, too far away to engage. Cunningham was puzzled. Why wasn't Rommel stopping him? In reality, Rommel was busy with his own plans to seize Tobruk, still holding out since his brilliant counteroffensive months earlier. The next day, November 19th, the British continued their advance, and the 7th Armored Brigade seized the airfield at Sidi Rezeg, only 12 miles southeast of Tobruk. The other two armored brigades were not doing so well. Both the 4th and 22nd Armored Brigades managed to get themselves badly mauled in successive engagements on the 19th and 20th of November. Curiously, on the 21st, the British tankers in the 4th and 22nd Brigades awoke to see that there were no Germans to their front. Rommel had withdrawn his tanks to concentrate on retaking the airfield at Sidi Rezeg. The Battle of Sidi Rezeg quickly devolved into a maelstrom of men and armor. A thunderstorm kicked up during the battle and mixed with the huge dust plume generated by the tanks, turning the desert into a mud cake disaster. Over the night of the 21st to the 22nd, the Germans brought up their artillery on the flanks of the town and used it in direct fire on the British tanks. That day, the 7th Armored Brigade was reduced to just 28 tanks. The following day, the 22nd Brigade attempted to relieve them, but were subsequently decimated themselves. On the third day, the 4th Armored Division was thrown into the fray and again suffered immense casualties. Cunningham had just fed his three armored brigades into Rommel's trap and nothing to show for it. By November 24th, both sides were exhausted and disorganized. The Germans had managed to significantly deplete the British armor advantage, but were themselves short of supplies and equipment. The British, for their part, had just spent several days fighting a losing battle, and their commander, General Cunningham, was at his wit's end. Searching in vain for a way to avoid defeat, Cunningham invited Auchinleck to the front for a council. When Auchinleck arrived, he found Cunningham a nervous wreck, but ordered him to continue the fight. He knew that Rama was in an equally precarious position, and was right. Rama only had about a hundred tanks left in his whole army, and he still had British occupied Tobruk to his rear. Auchinleck then relieved Cunningham of command, and replaced him with his former chief of staff, Major General Neil Ritchie. On the other side of the lines, Rommel could sense that the British command was in dire straits and sought to exploit it. He planned a counteroffensive for November the 26th. He roared ahead of the vanguard of his column toward Egypt, planning a deep raid intended to disrupt British supply and communication lines. That day, he made for himself some rather odd encounters while scouting a route for his army. First, he just rolled into a British field hospital and was greeted by British doctors who had no idea who he was. The German soldiers under their care knew right away, but didn't dare say a word. Not wanting to give himself away, he quickly left and continued his reconnoiter. Later in the day, he couldn't find the gap in the wire to return to Libya, so had to spend the night sleeping in his trunk in the middle of an Indian division camp. The next day, he demonstrated his personal courage and leadership style when he spotted a British armored car surrounded by men looking at maps. He knew it had to be some kind of headquarters and raced toward it, without waiting for his own armor to meet with him. When the British saw the dust plume coming toward them, they sped off, and Rommel decided he had better return to Libya. Meanwhile, his armored columns had been moving eastward, searching for British depots to raid. Despite coming within only a few miles of three different massive and supply dumps, the raid failed. When Rommel rejoined his troops on November 27th, he decided to return around and end the raid. Upon arriving back in Cyrenica, Rommel retook the airfield at Sidi Rezeg and consolidated the battlefield. The British ability to resupply their forces would prove to be the key advantage in the rest of the battle. 
Rommel and Auchinleck would continue to spar over the various bits of key terrain in eastern Cyrenica, but Rommel was slowly beaten back across the desert. For the next month, Rommel fought a fighting retreat back to El Agalia, where Auchinleck finally relented. After six weeks of hard fighting, the German army and the British needed a respite. In the battle between experience and sheer force of arms, force of arms won out, but only just barely. The grit of the British Imperial soldiers and the tenacity of their overall commander ensured that Rommel was not able to take Tobruk and consolidate Cyrenica. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.